Good morning. How's everybody doing? Beautiful day, isn't it? When I was in uh, when I was in high school, I I played high school soccer. How many of you ever played soccer before? Raise your hand, soccer players out there. Okay, a few of you. Okay, the rest of you are probably thinking soccer's for sissies. You know, I got that a lot from my my grandfather and whatnot. But nevertheless, I was a soccer player in uh, in high school, and I recall distinctly my senior year in high school. The uh, the coach was uh, he was a uh, well he was a slave driver to say the least. Okay, my coach in, in, in senior year. Montgomery High School Soccer, 1997. Now you can, can kind of gauge, you know, how young I am, or how old I'm getting, however you look at it. And and he would just ride us and ride us and ride us. And in preparation for the season, we would do tremendous amount of uh, of running. Uh, there was Spring Lake Park in the town that I grew up in, Santa Rosa. And at Spring Lake Park, it was about oh about a two and a half mile circumference uh, around the lake. And we would run around that lake two, at least two times, if not three times, if we weren't running it fast enough. And so we were running, uh, every other day, we were running about uh, a little bit, about a third of a marathon almost, around this lake in preparation for our season. And then at the end of running two or three times around the lake, he would stick us before this large hill. And I remember it distinctly. It was about a 45 degree angle, uh, and, and and we would we would have to just run up this hill, and run back down, and run up this hill, and run back down until we were just dropping dead. At the top of this hill, he put a rock, and the rock was about yay big, and on it he had scribbled the words NBL champs 97, whatever it takes. North Bay League champs, 97, whatever it takes. You put that rock up there on that hill in Spring Lake Park in a remote area that no one would have ever seen it except our team. And at the end of running two or three times around the lake, we would run up this hill 50, 60, 70 times, up and back, up and back, each time, touching that rock, touching that rock, touching that rock, thinking in our minds, whatever it takes, we are going to win league that year. And the story would be really good if we won league that year. <laughs> we got second place. And actually, we were tied for first place, but the team had, uh, had a better point differentiation, so they, they won first place. So, so yeah, there, there's my opening illustration. What a downer, huh? Whatever it takes, we were going to win league, and we didn't. But nevertheless, that coach instilled in me a sense of endurance, a sense of perseverance, a sense of commitment, a sense of dedication, a sense of faithfulness that I rarely got elsewhere in my life as a teenager. We did not win league that year. But I'll tell you what, I grew as a person being under his leadership. I grew as a person being under my soccer coach's leadership and under his devotion to doing whatever it takes to succeed. Our story today in Mark, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in verse 30. And you'll notice on your outline, it's, it's just the text today. And that's because this is not a, this is not a study that requires note-taking. 
This is a study that, that this is a look into the Gospel of Mark that requires seeing the story, period. Entering the story at hand. And so I want you to have the text, but not to be filling in notes today so much as hearing the story. And our story today is about people. Jews of the first century who upon seeing the person of Jesus Christ were running miles and miles just to be in His presence. Our story today is actually the feeding of the 5,000. But there's a nuance in the story that I want to highlight today. And we're going to see it soon enough in the text. And it is when the people see Jesus leaving and His disciples leaving on a boat going across the Sea of Galilee and the people on land... They run after the boat. They run after the boat. Men, women, children, they begin to run around the Sea of Galilee miles following the boat to the location where Jesus is going to dock in Bethsaida. These people would have only done that because they knew they wanted to be in Jesus' presence whatever it took. We're going to see a story in which people are wanting to be in Jesus' presence no matter what it takes. And then we're going to see how God responds to those people. How He responds to people who are seeking Him. Who are searching for Him. Who are looking for Him. The feeding of the 5,000 is a unique, very unique miracle because it's the only miracle save for the resurrection the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. John 6, verse 4 tells us that, that this miracle took place right around the Feast of Passover for the Jews. And so it was a time of celebration as they approached the Feast of Passover. And the people had gathered around Jesus and their disciples and they were preparing for the, really the holiday weekend, if you will. Much like we're at a holiday weekend. And, and the people were were preparing to celebrate and they had seen Jesus and the disciples and they wanted to be with Him. And when He left, they went after Him. Let's pick up the story in Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Mark 6, verse 30. It says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told Him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And He said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew Him. And they ran there on foot from all the cities. And they arrived before them and came together to Him. And Jesus, when He came out of the boat, He saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And He began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, His disciples came to Him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. 
Send them away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But Jesus answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. But they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. When they found out, they said, Five. Five loaves and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, he blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. Then they took up twelve baskets full of fragments and of fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. The title of my message today is Whatever It Takes to Be With You. Whatever It Takes to Be With You. Let's begin in verse 30, shall we? Verse 30 says this, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told Him all things, both both what they had done and what they had taught. And He said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest for a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Verse 30 describes the disciples coming back from their missionary journey. Now, the story of their leaving on this missionary journey was a message that we had two weeks ago, two Sundays ago, uh, when Jesus called the disciples to Himself and He sent them out into the land of Israel to be His ambassadors, to be His missionaries, to preach, to teach, to heal, to exercise demons. And it says He gave them power in chapter 6. He gave them power or authority to go out and to do this. And He told them, don't take anything with you except a staff. I don't want you to take a, a, a money belt. I don't want you to take a, uh, any bread or any copper. Wear your sandals, but don't take two tunics because I want you to rely on those who welcome you into their communities. In essence, Jesus was saying, I want you to to depend on Me as you go on your journey. Rely on Me for provision. And I'm going to open up homes for you. I'm going to provide you with meals from people in the communities in which you enter. And His disciples go out. Mark 6.12, if you'd like to read part of this. They went out and preached that people should repent. They cast out many demons, anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. And here we are in verse 30 of Mark 6. And the apostles have come back. While they were gone, John the Baptist was beheaded. And uh, while Mark doesn't indicate it, we can be sure that Jesus is uh, is grieving. He's he's grieving. John the Baptist, his cousin, his friend, his partner in in ministry, uh, the one who had baptized our Lord, was beheaded by a rash promise by King Herod Antipas. And 
Jesus receives his disciples back. They were most likely on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And as he receives them back, he hears from them of their report of good news in ministry. But you can be sure that at that time as well was a time of grief for them as they were remembering the death of their, their friend, John the Baptist, their partner in ministry. And so while the Passover feast is near, while John says that in his Gospel, the Passover feast was near, and it was, it was a time of remembrance and celebration of Israel's coming out of the land of Egypt, Jesus and His disciples were not really in the mood uh, to celebrate. Uh, they, were, uh, they were grieving John's death. And they were tired. Uh, the disciples had been on perhaps months of journeying around Israel. And they were, they were tired and they were exhausted and it said, and Jesus says, come aside by yourselves and let's go get some rest. And they get into a boat in a, in a vain attempt to get away from the crowds who had already gathered around them. And uh, the Gospel of Luke says they set sail for Bethsaida on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. So they start to go across the way, across the sea, thinking that they're going to get away from the crowds. But the crowds are not deterred by the prospect of having to outrun a fishing boat. And as the boat sets sail, the people start running. Verse 33, But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew Him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to Him. And Jesus, when He came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. And so He began to teach them many things. The people run on foot to keep pace with the boat as it departed. We're talking about men running, women running, children running, all running along the seashore of the Sea of Galilee. Based on what we're going to find out soon about the feeding of the 5,000 men, if we tally in the women and the children that were most likely a part of that event, you can imagine for a moment 15,000 people running along the seashore of Galilee. 15,000 people running after the boat just to be in Jesus' presence. 15,000 people. That's one-third the capacity of Angel Stadium. Or as I like to think of it, that's double the average attendance at an Oakland A's game, which I... My beloved Oakland A's. And just so you know, that's, that's not a good thing. That my A's only garner seven or 8,000 per game. A huge crowd! A huge crowd! We, we miss it. You know, we, we, we read this, oh, I've heard this story. I know if he broke the bread and distributed the fish, and I've heard this story, and it, what can I possibly learn more about it? 15,000 people were running, running after a boat to be in the presence of our Lord. That's astounding to me. 
And in a community where the largest village was probably no more than three to five thousand, we're talking three or four entire villages worth of people running after the boat. A humongous group of people were running after Jesus. They were astounded by His person. They were astounded by His teaching and by His miraculous hand. And they willingly ran miles just to be in His presence. They ran so fast that Mark says they arrived before Jesus. And His disciples did. And Jesus exits the boat and He looks upon the crowd now all sweating having run the Capernaum City Half Marathon. And, he, and, he, and I find it only natural that, that, that He feels compassion for them. He looks upon them and He thinks, wow, what commitment. What love and devotion. What a desire to, to be in My presence, Jesus thinks. And He's moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. He looked upon the crowds and and He felt badly for them. Because time and time and time again, their shepherds, their religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, their community shepherds had failed them. Their leaders in the synagogue had failed them. The crowds were craving genuine and authentic leadership. Holy and righteous leadership. And Jesus was the only one who was offering what they were seeking. That's why no rabbi of that day inspired thousands to run miles after Him. Only Jesus did. And the people are craving His teaching and craving the words of His lips. And verse 34 says, "...and He began to teach them many things." And Matthew and Luke says that He began to heal the sick. The commitment of the people to be in Jesus' presence was met by compassion from our Lord. I'm reminded that those who seek the Lord find the Lord. We see this as a, a theme in Scripture time and time and time again. Those who seek the Lord find the Lord. Jeremiah spoke of this in Jeremiah 29. When Israel was in exile... When Israel was in slavery, Jeremiah reminded the people with these words from our Lord. Jeremiah penning the words of God Almighty, writing to the people, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon Me and go and pray to Me and I will listen to you. And you will seek Me And you will find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. Seek the Lord. Find the Lord. Jesus Christ says these words in Matthew 7, 7 7-8, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. To him who knocks, it will be opened. Friends, simple passages, passages that you probably have, have, some of you have memorized. Seek the Lord, find the Lord. Seek the Lord, find the Lord. 
These people were running miles after Jesus. We should only expect that something miraculous is now going to happen as a result of their earnest seeking of God. God delights in blessing those who are seeking Him. And so we pick up the story in verse 35. It says, When the day was now far spent, His disciples came to Jesus and said, This is a deserted place. And already the hour is late. Send them away. Send the crowds away that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. As the day moved on, the time for teaching and healing soon ended. It was growing dark. The people had sought the Lord and they had found the Lord in many ways. He had taught them. He had healed them. He had, he had, had anointed the, he had, he had healed the sick and exercised demons, as Matthew and Luke suggest. And now the disciples are saying, okay, you know, time's up. Time's up. It's late. The people are hungry. It's growing dark. We need to send them back. We need to send them home. It's time for supper and, and for them to get some rest. And we need rest, the disciples say. We've been on a month-long journey, maybe two or three months, of being a missionary on Your behalf, Lord. We need to catch some Z's. We need to get some rest. So they pull Jesus aside and say, send them home. Send the people home. Verse 37, But He answered and said to them, You give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. And they said to Him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? You give them something to eat. What? Are you kidding? There are 15,000 people outside the city of Bethesda, all along this hillside. 15,000, Lord. And You're giving us a command to, to feed them? To buy them their dinner? That's impossible. It would cost 200 denarii. Eight months' wages. We don't have that kind of cash. Remember, you told us not to carry any copper in our belts? We don't have that kind of money. There's too many people. You've already taught them and healed them. Isn't that sufficient? I think it's safe to say that the disciples thought Jesus was a little bit off His rocker at a moment like that. They looked upon the Lord's words and they said, what are you talking about? That can't be done. But while the twelve were thinking Jesus' words irrational, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus knew what He was doing all along. If you read in John 6, verse 6, it says that He asked them this question, 
He, he, he told them to feed the multitudes because he already knew in his mind what he was going to do. John says he already knew in his mind what he was going to do. Verse 38. Jesus says, no money, no problem. That's okay. He said to them, how many loaves do you have? If we can't buy their lunch, let's see if, see if we can gather up enough food around here. Go and see. And when they found out, they said, there's five loaves and there's two fish. Then He commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. How many loaves do you have? Lord, there are 15,000 people up there on the hillside. And you want us to go and gather up the, what little fragments they've brought? Lest you forget, they just ran miles just to be here. Do you suppose that they stopped and packed a sack lunch on the way? Do you suppose that they were carrying their dinner, their supper with them? Of course not. They dropped everything just to be here in our presence. There's no food up there on that hillside. But one little lad, as John's Gospel tells us, Simon Peter finds uh, his lunch. And uh, he says, well, Lord, we've got, we've got these five loaves and two fish, but that's about all we've got. Jesus is perfect. Go and tell them all to sit down in groups. The quietest group will get to eat first. He did the, you know, the Awana five count, you know, one, two, three. And there, I, I'm telling you, the whole story here, the disciples are going, what are you talking about? There are five loaves and there are two fish and you want us to tell the people to sit down in groups. Sit down, everybody. You're all going to get a crumb. But the disciples obey. They carry out His wishes. And they have the people be seated, fifties and hundreds. Organized groups. By the way, they, uh, they sit down on the green grass. I've highlighted that. So why are we highlighting green grass? That adjective, green... Is, uh, is tremendously important, friends. What that adjective does is it confirms the connectedness of the Gospel stories on this miracle. Because you see, in deserted places in Israel, uh, the grass is not green but a few months out of the year. In the deserted areas and the wilderness areas, which is where they were around Bethesda, uh, I've been in this region. And much like uh, the hillsides um, in San Diego County, you know, you look up at the hillsides and they're just usually brown most of the year, right? Kind of that brown, grassy look. That's very similar to the land of Israel. And only two or maybe three months out of the year do you see green grass in the land of Israel. And you know when you see that green grass? You see it at the very end of the rainy season, which happens to be the first month of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, which happens to be the same month 
in which the Feast of Passover is carried out. John says that this miracle took place right before the Feast of Passover. Mark doesn't say that, but he does say it took place among the green grass. And so we see from those two accounts the harmony of Scripture. The fact that Mark included that small adjective goes to show that indeed this took place in the spring of Jesus' ministry in northern Israel. And what is more, the month of Nisan, the month in which the Feast of the Passover takes place, also happens to be the barley harvest. You know what kind of loaves they were according to John chapter 6? They were barley loaves. Freshly baked barley loaves. Because the wheat harvest had not yet come. Once again, friends, the harmony of Scripture is beautiful. These small words, these things that we pass over, all go to interconnect with one another to paint a beautiful, beautiful picture of the consistency of Scripture. All are seated. Groups of fifties and hundreds. The disciples have returned to Jesus' side and all eyes are on Jesus as He reaches into a small basket and lifts up the bread and the fish and looks toward heaven. Verse 41, And when He had taken the five loaves, the barley loaves, and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven. He blessed and He broke the loaves and gave them to His disciples to set before them. And the two fish He divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. And they took up twelve baskets, the disciples did, full of fragments and of the fish. Now those who had eaten the loaves were about 5,000 men. Jesus holds the bread and the, lo- and the fish in His hands. And He looks up toward heaven. And He says a prayer of blessing upon the meal. And He breaks the loaves. Divides the fish. And He reaches into His basket and begins to pour bread and fish in each basket that the disciple was holding. What began as a meal that would feed no more than two people had turned into a meal that fed thousands. The disciples, they, 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 they took their basket, already seeing in their one basket more than they had brought to Jesus in the first place, and they drop it in the middle of the group, and the group grabs their food, and they take the basket back, and they, they set it next to Jesus, and sure enough, He reaches in, and He pulls out some more, and drops it in their basket, and they go off to another group. I have no idea what the disciples must have felt at that moment in time. I have no idea what the crowds must have been thinking, kind of looking over their shoulders saying, wait a minute, do they really have that much food over there? Surely the groups toward the front were looking and saying, he's, He's creating this. They could see. They could see with their own eyes. There certainly wasn't enough food around Him. And yet Jesus was reaching in and dropping loaves and fish into every basket that would come toward Him until all were filled. 
And the whispers went up the mountain. All through the people. Jesus just made our meal. Our Lord just created our dinner. Unbelievable. I imagine all the people and all the disciples were were simply dumbfounded at what Jesus had done. They could not believe it. They had heard, the disciples had heard his command, you give them something to eat. And they thought, that's, that's not possible. That can't be done. They thought within themselves, we can't carry out this command. And to a point they were right. They could not, in and of themselves, carry out that command. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the food. They, in their own power, could not do what Jesus asked of them. What could be done with just five loaves and two fish, they reasoned. But it it was precisely at that moment, as as John said, Jesus was, was knowing all along what He was going to do. And so when He told them, you feed them, and they said, we can't. He said, you find out how much food there is. And they're just like, look, there's nothing here. It can't be done. It was at that moment, friends, in which Jesus chose to act. Jesus' timing, friends, is never coincidence. It's never, uh, it's never happenstance. He seems to act in the moments in which the people around Him are in the greatest measure of despair, helplessness, hopelessness, inability, when they're at their greatest moment of inferiority, that's when our God seems to act the most. I'm reminded of what Paul says. He says, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because I know the Spirit of the Lord at those moments in time rests upon me. I delight in weakness, Paul says. I delight in my times of weakness, in my times of inferiority, in my times of of feeling inadequate, because I know at those moments of time, the Spirit of God is most likely to work upon me mightily. Then I ask you the question today, are are you feeling inadequate? Are you feeling inferior? Are you you looking at your life and saying, I... I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not capable enough. I don't make enough money. I'm I'm worthless. I know I know all of us have said those kinds of things before in our hearts. We've looked upon ourselves and says, I, I can't do it. In and of myself, I can't do it. Friends, I'm telling you, I know it sounds crazy, but that is the best place you can be in the Lord's eyes. There is no better place you can be than to think yourself inadequate, inferior, incapable. Because it is in those times that the Spirit of God is most pleased to work on your life. 
to do what you could not do. To provide what you could not provide. And that is when God takes a special delight in blessing His children. And Jack and Debbie, they, and, and, and the team in Haiti, in, in Miami, they, they went out to, to meet with Yvonne, our, our Haitian missionary, and they, every day went by and they said, Lord, we came out here to buy them a home. And here we are, the last day, and we have no home for them. I, I can only imagine how frustrated they must have been. How disappointed they must have been. And yet, in the last hour, in the eleventh hour, as Jack and Debbie said, that's when God acted. That's when God acted. And He said, here's the home. This is the place. You can bring the real estate agent. You can bring all your knowledge. You can bring, you can bring it all together. But I want to bring you to the place of helplessness before I show you what I'd like to do. God works when we are most humble. I'm, uh, I'm impressed by a quote by a fellow pastor in the local area. His name is Peter John Corson. He's a pastor of Capitol Beach Calvary. They're going through the Gospel of Mark. And uh, they're about three or four chapters ahead of us, our church. But I listened to his message on this very text because I wanted his insight on it. And he said this about the story of the fishes and the loaves. Look what he says. He says, it's not what you have. It's not what you have. It's in whose hands you place what you have that makes the difference. It can just be a sack lunch. But placed in the hands of the Lord, it becomes a miracle that feeds thousands. You know, friends, um, it's not what we have. It's not our skills and our talents and our resources and our abilities and our education that matters. It's not. If we rely on our strengths, it will not be beneficial in serving our Lord. If we rely on our own power. But it's when we take that when we take what we have and say, Lord, this is Yours. I put this in Your hands. You do with it as You please that God acts mightily. It's not what we have. It's in whose hands we put what we have that makes the difference. Jesus gave physical nourishment to 15,000 people on that day 2,000 years ago. While physical bread is important, What Jesus truly desires you and I to partake of is an eternal kind of bread. And John records a special statement by our Lord not long after the feeding of the 5,000. This is what Jesus said to the multitudes. He said this, I am the bread of life. He who comes to Me shall never hunger. And he who believes in Me shall never thirst. The people were given physical provision and they were amazed. Unbelievable. What a miracle. But Jesus after this says, but I want to tell you about some more important bread. More important than the loaves that I've just divided is that you come to Me in faith. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. I am 
the nourishment that you need for eternity. You can partake of this physical bread, but it will not save you. You will still pass one day from this life. And it is only if you partake of Me, Jesus says, the bread of life, only if you come to Me, only if you believe in Me, only if you put your faith in Me, that you will be nourished forever in My presence. Jesus is the bread of life, friends. He offers to every single one of you everlasting life with God forever by simply believing in Him for it. And I urge you, I know uh, many of us are believers here today, here this morning, but I imagine that some are not. I urge you here this morning, if you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, today's that day. Today's the day to believe in the Lord and to receive everlasting life. To receive the forgiveness of sins. To receive God's life imputed to you forever. And all it takes is to believe in the Lord. Believe in Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He is the bread of life and He desperately desires to give you this nourishment. Remember the crowds? You know, we began the message um, talking about the crowds who ran to meet Jesus. 15,000 people ran along the seashore just to be in His presence. Men, women, children, they ran miles just to hear Him teach, hear, see Him heal, to be eyewitnesses to this amazing teacher and healer. And I ask us um, the question, do we have that same kind of motivation to be with Christ? Uh, I wonder, do we share that same enthusiasm? I have no doubt that um, were Jesus to be uh, you know, at, uh, at the Mission Viejo Mall signing autographs, that we would all get up and run over there right now, wouldn't we? We would all get up and we'd run because we, we would see Him. He'd be in our presence and, and there He is. There's our Lord, our Savior. Let's go be with Him. Let's run to Him. I have no doubt that we would run to Him if He was presently with us in, 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 in person, in, in the flesh. I have no doubt we'd run toward Him. But He's with us in spirit. And He's not with us in flesh. And it becomes a little bit more difficult, doesn't it, to maintain that sense of enthusiasm, to maintain that sense of inspiration, of being in the presence of Christ at any given moment. I think it's safe to say we're probably a little less enthused than this crowd was. Because we don't see Him. We sense His presence in the Spirit, but it's hard when you don't see someone. It's hard. Of course, we want this enthusiasm, don't we? We want to desire God more. We want to desire the Spirit's presence more. But oftentimes, we forget where to find this inspiration. We think this inspiration comes from maybe how we act or or what we do or what we say. We think, if I can just be more good, 
more moral. If I can have better character, then perhaps I'll, I'll draw closer to Christ. Or if I serve more or, or do a lot of things for the Lord, maybe, maybe then I'll grow more intimate with God and maybe that'll satisfy, that, maybe that'll give me enthusiasm and motivation. Uh, friends, it's, it's, it's one of the, the deepest burdens of my soul. I will share with you as, as a pastor, one of my deepest, deepest burdens is to remind people that growing in intimacy with Christ, growing in relationship with Christ, becoming more in the presence of Christ, does not mean doing more good things than bad things. The vitality of our faith is not predicated on what we say, what we say, or we do. It's not predicated on those things. What it's based on, the vitality of our faith, is it's based on regular meditation on His love, on His devotion, on His work, on what He did to us, demonstrated by the cross, that causes us to become people who willingly love and devote ourselves to Him. I say again, our intimacy with Christ is not predicated on, on our love and our devotion and our desire to, to do or say or, or, or be good enough to be close to God. It's not based on those things. What it is based on is thinking about, meditating about, considering His love, His devotion, His work. That's why the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 9, the following words. He says this, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It is considering that work that draws you closer into the presence of God. And, might I add, makes you do more good, makes you be more holy, makes you become more obedient makes you speak better, makes you have better character, makes you be a person of integrity, makes you a better husband, a better wife. But you see, if you focus on all those things first, if you say, I've got to be better, i got to be better, and you miss this, that event, you forget to think about this, you will be trying in vain every time to draw closer in your intimacy with Christ. You will be doing what Paul preached against, and that is following the law and not considering the grace of Christ. You might recall the title of my message today was, Whatever It Takes to Be With You. Now, I, I said that title with a capital <clears throat> Y, spoken from the perspective of the multitudes, that they were saying to Christ, hey, whatever it takes to be with you, 
I'm going to do it. I'm going to run miles. I'm going to run along the seashore just to be in Your presence, Lord. Whatever it takes to be with You. And here's the irony. While the multitudes ran miles on foot just to be with Jesus, greater still, much greater still, God in Jesus Christ has run toward you and toward me in the cross. He has taken our sin upon Him. He's given us a second chance at redemption. He has run mightily toward you and toward me. He's running toward us to be in our presence. How amazing is that grace? In lieu of a closing hymn this morning, we're going to close with a song. And this song is um, by a band called Third Day. It's about ten years old. And this song celebrates the fact that it's not us running toward Christ. It's not us doing whatever it takes to be with Christ. It's that Christ has done whatever it takes to be with us. And when we consider that, it is in those times where we draw more intimate with our Savior. Listen to this song. Listen to these lyrics. And make this your prayer. As, as, it's, as this song goes, it is sung from the perspective of Jesus Christ.
Uh, that song's important to me. That, that's a song that really that, that, that speaks to my heart because it reminds me that man, I've, I am totally incapable. I'm totally inferior. I'm totally inadequate. My worth only comes because Jesus Christ said, I'll do whatever it takes just to be with you. That's an amazing gift. Folks, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, today's the day. Believe on Christ and you will be saved. I urge you to talk to me about that after the service and I'd love to help you begin this journey of faith. Will you all stand with me as we close in a word of prayer, shall we? Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, Your Son, He is what our lives are all about. It is Your Son's sacrifice that gives us worth. It is Your Son's sacrifice that enables us to be people who can love and who can be people of faith, people who serve You. But it's only because of the inspiration that comes from the cross, Father. Father, we thank You for Your Son's sacrifice on Calvary. We will not forget that sacrifice, Lord. We thank You, Lord, that that as we believe in Christ for everlasting life, as we believe in the bread of life, that Your Spirit comes upon us, that we become a child of God forever, and that we have the capacity to participate in Your kingdom. Father, thank You for those great and mighty gifts. I pray that each and every person here would find enthusiasm, inspiration, motivation from the cross. Not from ourselves, but from the cross. Thank You, Lord, that You did everything it took just to be with us. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.